Empire podcast this week. Aaron Eckhart falls from Olympus and lands in the pod booth. We chat to Sylvester McCoy about playing both the wizard and the doctor, review Tom Cruise's latest sci-fi oblivion and assess the clash of the heartthrobs that is the place beyond the pines. Hello, I'm Helen O'Hara and welcome to the Empire podcast, the only movie podcast that has a plan to survive a devastating attack on Earth by hostile aliens by hiding under Morgan Freeman's cape. I'm back from my own exciting travels, during which I ate in a restaurant once frequented by Hemingway and visited the birthplace of a French king once played by Daniel Otoy. And I'm once again stepping into the shoes of Chris Hewitt because he's far away on a mission from God, or at least our editor, which, you know, is much the same thing. Joining me today are the Fast, the Furious and the Fellini lovers of the Empire office. Uh, first up, Ali Plum, whose super fast fingers o' fire are responsible for editing this very podcast every single week. And he also enjoys dressing up as Ryan Gosling in his spare time. Hello, Ali. I'm currently wearing a, a wig and, and petting a small puppy. Uh, next, we have the Furious, as we are joined by the seething cauldron of rage that is James Dyer, who will absolutely fong you if you get on his bad side, but also enjoys kittens and long walks on the beach. Hey, James. Hi. <laughs> you see, that is, doesn't sound furious at all. Now I feel like I've lied. Yeah. Um, uh, finally, I should say we have uh, Phil DeSemlin. You just heard him there. Hello. He's a man who spent his Easter break Hello, watching yes. Passenger 57 on repeat. That's is that, it. that correct? That's right. Not no, no, it didn't. Oh, okay. Wait. Was it in fact the passenger? Yes. Okay, that makes the more sense. The passenger fifty-seven, in which Wesley Snipes wanders the desert forlornly for about two hours. Right. As directed by Always bet on sand. Always bet on sand. Yeah, that's much more in keeping with the persona we've created for you here. But Phil was revealed yesterday that not only have we stereotyped you, but also your love film account has stereotyped yeah. you as well. Is this correct? That is correct. I have, I have like a wish list of about twenty-five movies and not by all means not by any means are they all in French but they seem to <laughs> by some random algorithm pick out all of the French ones um, and send them to me huh so um, I have a flight to catch on Friday night and I have uh, I have a double bill of Renoir to get through <laughs> I just want to watch I just want to watch something fluffy See, like, if I get like on Passenger a... 57 yeah. like Passenger 50 well no do they show that on planes I don't I think they do no yeah. probably not they don't um, yeah, if, if if I get on a plane, I want to see something, you know, completely brainless. But you, you get on a plane and it's Renoir all the way. <laughs> brainless. <laughs> yeah, totes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's start with your uh, messages and comments through the week. At Mr. Harry Lime asks, which movie death would you choose if you had to? I would go for uh, Frank in Kick-Ass. Uh, I like the way he has that nice rocket trip, just flying out oh. of the building and then... Average... If you're going for a rocket trip, surely it's the sand spider from the end of True Lies. Well, that was the thing yeah. I was about to say. I was you're also fired. going to say from True Lies, the guy who fires the rocket backwards and the guy in the truck flies forwards through the window and then gets run over by the truck. Well, if we're picking the greatest rocket deaths, I put it to you that Tony Todd in The Rock, who is the rocket man, <laughs> uh, would be one to choose. There is so much rocket death. <laughs> no, there's a lot of rocket death. This is a yeah, subsection yeah. of the question. Yeah. James really and I just looked at each other straight <laughs> down the, straight down <laughs> the so glasses. It's a rocket off. <laughs> is that how well, it is? Well, if you're going to go for a rocket, I'm going to go for... I'm not going for a rocket. I'm going Freudian. for... I'm going for um, Billy and Predator. Billy and Predator, yeah. okay. What, you want to die off camera when no one knows what happened? Yeah, well, you know wouldn't necessarily That's be the dead. worst choice in the world. We can make a pact. Me and the alien. You do have your spine ripped out shortly afterwards, but you're already dead, so that doesn't count as part That's of it. That's true. Well, what, what's the what's the criteria here? Is this 
Is this? I think you should be the shark in Jaws. You know, chew on a compressed air canister and someone, you know, okay. shoot you in the mouth. I suppose ideally I'd just go for one of those freeze frame deaths. Like <laughs> Butch and Sundance. Exactly. That's a great idea. Yeah, Butch and Sundance death. I agree with that. Yeah. Okay, good. Thanks. I'd like to see Phil suffer Bennett's death from uh, Commando. This is not the question. What movie death will you choose for someone in your team? <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you were being thorough about it, you'd go for something like John Malkovich's death in uh, in Con Air, which sort of had him what fall from a great height, be electrocuted, and have his head squished by a, uh, a giant. Ah, uh, actually, you've reminded me of great. Sean Bean tells this great story about how on Patriot Games, you know, at the end of Patriot Games, uh-huh. you know, spoiler for anyone that hasn't seen Patriot Games, um, he is what happens he's on the speedboat mm. yep. he has the fight with Harrison Ford he does he, he does. sort of gets shot he has a anchor embedded in his skull and then uh, Sean Bean talks about how he went back to the studio and they were like hey Sean there's still some ambiguity about this the, the audience may not realise you're dead so we're going to blow up the boat as well and Sean's like it's not me I've had fucking anchor in I've been shot <laughs> I think they know. Anyway, so you know he's got the sort of triple triple threat death that one. Yeah, he dies a lot to Sean Bean, he does. as we've discussed Bless many him. times in the office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that would be one death. Otherwise, the sort of dying in your sleep thing, which is presumably what happens at the end of the Notebook at some point. But I don't. I'm not up for the whole you know Alzheimer's first if I can avoid it. So. <laughs> you just lower the tone of this Sorry. conversation. We start yeah. with rockets for God's sake. <laughs> dying in my oh, bed, dying peacefully in my sleep with a rocket. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, at Bex in the City asks, I was thinking about buying Empire Magazine at lunch. I'm pretty partial to a film. Are they a bit male-oriented in their movies? We are. We rate uh, films out of five boobies. That's generally how we... uh, What's that one normal person and her from Total Recall? (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. I, I would say no, but also yes. I don't know. I think, you know, the movie industry is perhaps slightly friendlier to men than women. That would be... And we reflect that probably, but at the same time, hey. The core cinema-going demographic is 13-year-old boys, so... Ah, no, it's not anymore. 50% is women. 50% of 13-year-old boys are women. Now, that is a headline. (laughs) We don't control the advertising that goes in the magazine. The advertising that goes in the magazine is the advertising that advertisers have decided to place in the magazine. So when you open up and there's a, you know, eau de cologne for some naked sailor... That's because the advertisers have decided to put it in there. A lot not of girls Empire might like went, a naked sailor. Well, I, that's saying. what I was thinking. Depends on the sailor. There's yeah. two ways of looking at it. Um, but yeah, so a lot of people look at the advertising and go, God, this is obviously just for guys. Well, the adverts are. Let's put it that way. The other thing is that uh, W.H. Smith and other news agents, I don't want to pick on them specifically, place Empire within the male interest section of the newsstands, which I personally think is, is very strange. Why isn't there like a music and film or a TV section that would make more sense for me but that's where it is again we don't control that and uh, I'm sorry if it's it's annoying for people who have to you know glaze over nuts as they go and pick up their much better copy of Empire sometimes that's the case not always at Pia Jess asks um after Chris dissed Nancy Myers last week what rom-coms can you handle a repeat viewing of I would personally say all the good ones, really, which you know doesn't always include the Nancy Myers sort of interior design porn fests. Um, did Chris diss Nancy Myers last week? He did. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Sorry, uh, not, it, it's not personal, Nancy. Anything was. by Richard Curtis, really, endlessly. <laughs> I'm a real soppy sod when it comes to that stuff. Love, you know, Four Weddings, Notting Hill. Love, actually, I love all that stuff. One Fine Day, amazingly enough, I own on DVD. <laughs> so <laughs> it is. Sad but true. I, you know, I, a good a good rom com. I can I can. Here's a new film coming out soon. But Tenterhooks and time travel sci-fi rom com. Yes, so all your combines all my favourite things. Yeah, if there's a minigun in it, you're away. A minigun and a sentry gun. A mini sentry gun. 
I feel like this question's a bit loaded. That what rom-coms can you handle seems to be meaning the pink DVD box art type rom-com, mm. whereas rom-coms are a kind of a, a very large, amorphous genre that have things like When Harry Met Sally, It Happened One Night, High Fidelity, if you want to call that a rom-com. Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead, that's a rom-com. Uh, Groundhog Day, you can call that a rom-com. Annie Hall, Ten Things Ahead About You, 40-Year-Old Virgin. Those aren't necessarily, I think, what this question asker is asking about. Made uh, in Manhattan is, I think, what this is talking that's about. That's what they're saying. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, all of the above that I just mentioned, I'd say I'd happily watch over and over and over. High Fidelity is one of the movies I've watched most in my life. But yes, I'm not going to regularly watch My Best Friend's Wedding, though I do own it. It's actually not a bad film. It's though. not. Actually, it's really good. I quite film. like The Wedding Planner as well. I know it's J-Lo, but I think it's quite... I, I actually, I kind of rate it. I do. I'm sorry. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Yeah, yeah no, no. It's better than a lot of the ones that followed it for those two. Yeah, Fool's Gold. What's your favourite Drew Barrymore movie, apart from the one with Rider Skating? Um, uh, Never Been Kissed. Mm. Also the Wedding Singer. Uh, But that doesn't feel like a Drew Barrymore movie. That feels like an Adam Sandler movie. Sorry, is that cheating? (laughs) (laughs) That's totally cheating. Who coined the phrase rom-com? Do, I mean, I wouldn't I expect you to give me a name, know. but do you know roughly when that started to become Lingua Franca? Is it a Britishism? Because no. I once said it to The Rock in an interview, and he just went, a rum-cum? What's a rum-cum? rum-cum. Well, but then he would never have come across that because he's far too much. Yeah. He is The Rock. He is The Rock. It's kind of a little misleading sometimes. You're watching films oh, yeah. like, oh, that's a rom-cum, and I'm like, there's nothing funny in this film whatsoever. <laughs> well, The Apartment, Joss Whedon uh, recently argued to me that it's not a rom-cum at all. Um, and that it's it's actually not a comedy. It just has some very funny elements, but exactly. it's not a comedy. And uh, it happened one night. Is a screwball. It's a screwball comedy. I think the romance you know, is obviously there, but it's that's not what it. I don't think. But then screwballs. I think if, if somebody made a screwball nowadays, it would be described by many people as a rom com. So yeah, or you know. just a bit weird. <laughs> unfortunately well Down With Love for example was I think widely described as a rom-com and it's it's also a screwball Intolerable Cruelty yeah. also fits into that category which I have a soft spot for I do like that film I do too I yeah. don't at all <clears throat> many people loathe it I apologise for the next name at Farting Skittles asks <laughs> who should Tom Cruise model the rest of his career on even he must realise he need to change I don't know that I entirely agree with the premise of the question actually Gene Hackman or Steven Soderbergh because they have both retired. Ouch. Ooh. I actually love Tom Cruise. I was just going for a joke there. Um, oh. I think he's doing Gosh. fine. I think he, Yeah, he, he's Tom Cruise. Yeah, and he does mix it up. I mean, it's not like he hasn't pushed himself. You know, he doesn't... It's not like he's never taken a risk and just always stuck with blockbusters. Absolutely. He's one of these actors that's not as good as his last film, in which case, a Mission Impossible 4, he would have been riding high. Everyone would be like, Tom mm. Cruise is back. He's as good as his last five or ten films. Everybody looks at his recent filmography and looks at the Jack Reacher and they'll look at um, Oblivion now yeah. see how that does um, things that haven't worked as well for him Val- sure. since Valkyrie, Valkyrie he's yeah. had some he's had some flops um, Night and Day yeah. Night and Day dreadful. is that what it's called it was yeah, really was poor dreadful. didn't work but he does he does get films made I think that's the thing about mm. Tom Cruise he can get stuff made mm-hmm. Reacher may have come to the screen eventually well uh, Lee Child who obviously wrote the Jack Reacher books he said that he had this thing that he he feels that Tom Cruise is on the cusp of becoming a sort of an elder statesman Paul Newman type character and he hoped that's what would happen in one in what was then one shot which became you know Jack Reacher I can um, obviously that's not what happened then mm. but uh, could that happen for Tom possibly I think it could I think because he, he can get films made he still kind of opens movies in a big way and he's got incredible drive and, and, and charisma, vigor yeah. and yeah 
Yeah. But he's actually a very good actor. People sort of like overlook that part of him that dramatically he's actually very capable. Uh, when know, he takes those some, roles. Well, yeah. like Born on the Fourth of July type thing. Well, I mean, anything go back. I mean, Magnolia, Interview with a Vampire. He's done a lot of a lot of things which have stretched him and I think succeeded quite well with them. So. Mm. You should almost look out for those sorts of projects, I think. Yeah. You know, working with Paul Thomas Anderson and that kind of stuff. Because he is, I think, you know, an underrated actor. Mm. Mm. It's um, very easy to sort of focus on the couch jumping and all the tabloid stuff and actually yeah. overlook the fact that, you know, he's the biggest movie star in the world, but he's also, you know, one of the better actors out there. I think that's right. I mean, maybe maybe we're just due another sort of Paul Thomas Anderson type uh, collaboration from him. It's been a couple of films where he's been back in kind of blockbuster mode and maybe he just needs to... You know, go and do something smaller again. But I mean, you mentioned Paul Newman; that would seem like a good model for anybody's career, to me. So, you know, fingers crossed. Yeah, salad dressing. Salad dressing. Tom Cruise barbecue sauce and cookies. Cookies. <laughs> Tom Cruise cookies. He needs to do a Color of Money sequel where he comes back and then teaches another young gun. Yeah. Channing Tatum. Channing Tatum. <laughs> I like it. Okay. At Mark Burridge asks, "What summer blockbuster do you wish they would re-release so you could watch it on the big screen again? Are there any left?" Independence Day. Oh, yeah. It's Independence Day. I'd love to see that in cinema again. I can feel people creaking their tweeting fingers just hearing Independence Day going, Really? Independence Day? How it's could No, but I'm not, you know, regardless of what you think of the film, and I think it's great. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's like, it's the quintessential summer movie. It's amazing. There's stuff blowing up. There's Will Smith being funny. There's the White House being disintegrated. There's aliens. There's Jeff Goldblum. It's, you know, dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, surviving explosions. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've seen Jaws on the big screen yeah. again last Star year. Star Wars is cheating because, frankly, it has been re-released numerous times. Indeed, uh, Jurassic Park is back. Already. That's a good shout, though. Yeah. The, Jurassic Park's a great one to see again on the screen, and I've not seen it again on the screen since I first mm. saw it. So. I saw it a couple of years ago when it came out in the re-digitized, uh, touched-up version, but now it's coming out in 3D. Is yes, its new thing. Shudder. I've never seen ET on the big screen. I'd love to do it. Um, at one point in my life and obviously Raiders uh, but I've seen that in kind of indie cinemas so yeah yeah. I'd quite like to see Close Encounters on a huge screen That's like nice, Close Encounters nice, IMAX good one. Mm. you know that'd be pretty cool Terminator 2 also a very good I show again one. I've seen it in cinema several times because it's been really re-released endlessly but uh Yes, that's very good. Very good film to see in the cinema. I saw that in the IMAX, actually. Which didn't... It it didn't didn't fill the IMAX, but it really did it. Gave it a good run for its money. I also... That was in a time travel all-nighter where I also saw Back to the Future. I've seen uh, Aliens at the IMAX. Again, it was uh, only filling a small part of the screen. And it uh, it wasn't even a DVD, which they sometimes do when they cheat and put things on the cinema. It was an original print because it was crappy as hell and there was (laughs) crap all over it. Uh, But that was a pretty great experience. The bitter tears of Petra von Kant. <laughs> Thank you, Phil, for <laughs> also uh, showing the IMAX. The I heard yeah. so that's quite uh, quite exciting in 3D in IMAX. Yeah, grab yeah, your popcorn. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, at now the pictures asks best independent movie theater in the UK. Prince Charles. Prince Charles is pretty terrific. That is definitely the correct answer. That, that, that is that is a question with a correct answer, and that is it. <laughs> I would, I'd like to suggest some runners up uh, if you include the screen on the green. You know the screen. The electric, yeah, yeah. yeah. I really enjoy the. It's a very, very, very small cinema, but there's uh, the screen on Baker Street, which is about the size of this pod booth. But it's really nice for watching your um, Phil type movies because it's so <laughs> compact and cosy. Not to pigeonhole. Cock off. I, I, honestly, the screen's about Cock as off. big as Sorry. a I don't know a school whiteboard. Um, but there's just mm. something about the atmosphere in there that's really nice. And then there's also I would suggest the. Curzon on Russell Square in the Brunswick mm-hmm. I think it's actually called the Renoir that's a good one. Yes. Uh, and that's <laughs> just a really nice 
it's a really nice it's a basement cinema but it's a really nice location and they pick some rather arte choices this has all got quite parochial though hasn't it there must be other ones outside of London uh, I like the ultimate picture palace in Oxford I've got fond memories of that um, I, and yeah likewise the cameo in Edinburgh although that's now picture house which is obviously a chain Cineworld, which is obviously not independent yeah. in that sense, but still beautiful. There's a screen in uh, Winchester, which was a converted army hall. So <laughs> it's one of those cinemas that is back to back. So there are two cinemas, two screening rooms within the building, but they're back to back. And if there's a loud movie behind you, you hear it when you're watching yeah. <laughs> the if other movie. If we're flinging screens to the four winds, there's a, there's a very nice little screen in Byron Bay in Australia uh, <laughs> attached to the Piggery, which is a former abattoir. Uh, and I saw Kundun there, which seemed vaguely appropriate in an abattoir. And you sit on little, little sort of bean bags on the floor and watch it. It's quite good. Why is watching... Ku- Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> I didn't know that, really, in Byron. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Very true. Like Byron. The All Arts right. Factory is attached to a youth hostel. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for those posers, you clever people. If you want yours read out on the show, you can email us at podcast at empiremagazine.com. Tweet us where we are at Empire Magazine and, of course, use the hashtag Empire Podcast uh, or get hold of us on Facebook where we are once again Empire Magazine. OK, on with the interviews. Uh, first up, we're joined by a man of nearly godlike power who measures his age in centuries, who can bring hedgehogs back from the dead or travel through space-time, and all this with bird poo in his hair. Yes, it's the man-myth that is Sylvester McCoy, the seventh Doctor and the wizard Radagast in one handy package. He came in to tell us all about, well, a bit about, uh, The Hobbit, which is now out on DVD, and here's what happened when he spoke to some giggling fangirl who sounds a bit like me. Welcome, uh, Sylvester McCoy, the seventh Doctor, the third wizard, uh, and I believe one of... Uh, the first podcaster. The first <laughs> podcaster, and I believe one of uh, Hollywood's foremost spoonists. Spoonist, not spoonerist. Spooner, no, different thing. Yes, I play the spoons. <laughs> I've played the spoons oh, at the Barbican Hall with the London Concert Orchestra. Wow. I've played spoons to Mozart. He was uh, dead at the time, but they dug him <laughs> up and he was still decomposing. But anyway, I played spoons all over the place. Uh-huh. And I have to say, I mean, as, as soon as we saw the, the trailer, the thing people were talking about was suddenly I think everyone in the world realised that what's been missing from our lives is a sled pulled by giant rabbits. Um, and, and you get to have one. Yes. Uh, the, the rabbits are the actual size rabbits that do exist on this earth. Wow, gosh. They come from northern, um, well, south Holland and northern Belgium. There's an area just there where they've got these very large rabbits. They're based on them. Excellent. I was trying to save the life of a hedgehog, but it wasn't a real hedgehog I was acting mm. with. It was a stuffed hedgehog. It kept sticking into me. It was horrible. Simon ugh, kept jagging me. But on the screen, these wizards of Weta have created the most beautiful, sad, tragic little hedgehog. Radagast is, is such a... A fun character in many ways because he's he's not really in the Hobbit. He's mentioned, I think, in passing at one point in the yes. Hobbits, and then he appears very, very briefly in Lord of the Rings. And, and certainly, as a reader, you know, I read them when I was six or seven, and and he somehow stuck with me, even though yes, he's it's surprising that it. isn't it? A lot of people have come up to me and say, "Oh, Radagast, he's one of my favourites." But mm. he's hardly mentioned. But yes, he, he somehow. Well, well, there is a magic about him. And you've got this literal bird's nest of a, of a sort of a hairdo and, and a, a look to him. You know, he's very much not just, you know, uh, I guess a champion for nature, but almost a part of it himself. Oh, yes, it's, kind of it's nature has taken him over. Mm. His house is an absolutely delightful, higgledy-piggledy place, uh, but nature has taken over and moved in with him. Mm. And it's the same with his clothes, you know, uh, bird's nest on his head and mice and... Ferrets and goodness knows what else are hanging around inside his 
his his his many cloaks and mm. beards and things. On stage, it's a it's a, it's a big epic, and um, you paint with a broader brush, mm. a bit like Rolf Harris's big brush, really. Whereas in film, it's painting with a fine Japanese brush, mm. and so it's much more intimate and um, quiet and intense. I mean, I did work with a lot of green in you know green screen, but for years I did a program many many years ago, the beginning of my television career called Vision On, which worked with the new invented blue screen as it was then, and we played with it. And I've always loved it what you can do with green screen, mm. now, you know. So uh, that was good fun. Although Ian did tell me when I did arrive for my first kind of days filmings with Ian. Uh, he'd been there for a couple of months working with the dwarfs and with Martin. Now, they've got to be much smaller than he. So he was delighted when I arrived because at least he could look into my eyes yes. and I could look into his. And we could, you know, we, yeah. he didn't have to have a microphone. You're and relatively the same, same size. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> relatively. So, how long were, were you on set for in total, do you think? Oh, no idea. I went out for the first time eight weeks, then came back, went back for two weeks, then came back, then went back for six weeks, then came back, then went back for four weeks, then came back. And God, I, I mean, I've been around the world maybe, I think, five times. I try to go around the same way because each time you go around, you lose a day. So, mm -hmm. I'm five days younger oh, when wow. I started this film. <laughs> Congratulations. <I> too. <laughs> Are you moving your birthday then backwards? Every yes, time I you will. Go? Yeah. <laughs> If, I keep doing this, if this carries on, I mean, if they made an air, you know. I mean, it was supposed to be two films, now it's three. Yeah, exactly, you know, and maybe they'll figure out a way to put in a, a mid-quill in between The Hobbit and The Lord of yes, the Rings somehow, yes. or make the Silmarillion or and something. I'll get younger, I'll get a week off my age. <laughs> now, you were originally, you were one of the last two for Bilbo last time, so yeah. is it, um, I wouldn't say sweet revenge this time, but is, does it feel like, a you know, something that the time has finally come, it's finally yes, here? yes. I mean, I was. I mean, obviously, I was disappointed when I didn't get Bilbo mm. because it went right up to the wire. Yeah, and they kept phoning up and saying, "Well, no, we still don't. We don't let Sylvester get any bookings for those dates because uh, he's still in. You know, he's still in the, in play." Um, but then um, Ian Holm got it. Mm. I didn't know who I was up against, but then when I thought I was in that company, I was. I was actually rather. That was a, that helped me get over it. Mm. If you you know, I patted myself. Wow, at least I was in his company. Good. Yeah, it wasn't. And like I him. didn't. I mean, I wasn't. I didn't think. No, you can't let him do it. I mean, he's not <laughs> as good. Or anything. I mean, you know, he's just the brilliant, wonderful, great Ian Holm. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it it was disappointing, but not mm. as disappointing. Yeah. But that's when they first saw me. So they obviously liked me because they hung on to me for that long mm. for that. Yeah, and you, then I mean, they did use my hairstyle. I mean, Ian Holm as Bilbo Baggins has got my hair. It's not the same as it was now because it's grey and flat, but it used to be curly and wild. I remember looking at the film thinking, wait a minute, that's my hair. <laughs> <laughs> I think the same could be said having looked at uh, you know Peter Jackson around the time of the making of that film. That was his hair as well. His hair as well. Yeah, we had yeah. the same kind of wild, unkempt. Yeah. You know, uncombed hair. And what was the line? I think the only people in the entire three films who didn't need a wig were his kids when they when they did their little cameos. They naturally were the only people to have the right hair. For oh, Hobbits, really? Apparently so. <laughs> Hobbit hair. Hobbit hair. <laughs> so, you know, by that standard, really, you should have, uh, you're, you're, you're overdue for uh, for Middle Earth. <laughs> yes. Well, of course, as luck would have it, I was, as I say, as mentioned earlier, touring the world in King Lear with Ian mm -hmm. and we went to New Zealand and so... Ah. You know, the team came to see us in Wellington and uh, invited us to their home and, you know, got to know them a bit better. So mm. slowly that step towards 
Radagast the Brown was being made. No, I, I, I roll it when I say my name because it's, you know, it's Radagast the Brown. All those R's, they're lovely. In Glasgow, it says Radagast the Brun. <laughs> oh, hello there, we hairy man. How are you doing? So <laughs> Radagast the Brun. <laughs> this one, the book, is what a third of the size of one of the Lord of the Rings, nearly, and it's being made in three films. So you know, you've read the script. Can you reassure any doubters out there? Does it does it feel well? I don't know. I mean, I have, I, I've. Uh... Uh, I haven't read the whole script. We weren't really? allowed it all. No, only little bits and sections and, sec- you know, it's kind of secrets. You know, <laughs> I think we were filmed sometimes. Um, so I haven't really read the script. I don't even know. What, I know vaguely what's happening. But I think they've they've most likely filmed the commas and the exclamation marks and the page turns <laughs> and the Ooh. chapter headings. Sounds quite existential in that sense. <laughs> I mean, uh, in terms of world building, I mean, you you know, Sir Christopher Lee, obviously in these films as well, back as Saruman, um, he's been in uh, Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth, and also the Star Wars series. You know, you've been in Middle Earth and also obviously Doctor Who, but there's a new Star Wars series coming up. I mean, are you tempted to kind of outdo him by oh, trying right. to get a place in that? And, you know, be more of a geek god than he is. Oh, yes. No, yes, I would love to be, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've enjoyed being a bit of a geek god. <laughs> well, I kind of, he's a pope, but I'm, you know, I'm one of the cardinals. Right. You know, and I would quite like to take over as pope, geek <laughs> god, whatever that might be. <laughs> it's an intriguing, uh, I'm not sure what colour of smoke would come out the chimney. But yes, it's well, an intriguing well he's, he's got the white anyway, hasn't he? So it fits. <laughs> I think that it does. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a red, so that makes the cardinal. <laughs> so the cardinal's hat would fit then. Uh, yeah, I was. I did train to be a priest, so, you know, it's kind of... That's right, you were, in, in, my, you were uh, in the seminary at school, weren't you? Yeah. Oh. Um, we were in Aberdeen, we called it. Many are cold, but few are frozen. <laughs> I, I left to become a monk, mm-hmm. and on the way home, they, I got a letter when I arrived home to say that I was actually had filled in the form, and I was a year too young, so I'd have to wait for a year, mm-hmm. and so I couldn't really go back to the seminary. So I went to the local school, the local Danun Grammar School, and it was a mixed sex school. And mm-hmm. very short time, I decided not to wear a skirt but chase it instead. So that was <laughs> it, really. Now we mentioned Doctor Who. I have to obviously ask about that. I mean, the current renaissance is incredible. I remember, you know, as a kid, sort of watching it from behind a cushion on the sofa, you know, with a cushion strategically placed so I could, you know, pull it in front of my eyes at a moment's notice. Um, But, I mean, now it's just become this phenomenon. It really has. It's bizarre. Did it It feel that way back in the day? No. Well, it was kind of, uh, you know, much loved. Mm. Um, But I, I think it's become a much greater one. But also because the BBC were, you know, who looked after the selling of it. You know, it was run by amateurs, really. Mm. You know, Women's Institute people. You, you, they, they didn't know what to do with it. They had no idea to do with something, you know, to run with it. Mm. So it's great now that it's come back. It's, it's just amazing. And it's, it's a joy, too, because lots of young people come up to me because they love it so much and then they go searching for more yeah. they're hungry for more and uh, luckily I'm kind of the last one who's kind of nearly connected to the present if you know what mm. I mean so that I'm easier to find and maybe also to digest as well and so you know I have this whole new fan base of young people it's just mm. such a joy uh, it, it's it's amazing seeing it. I mean, because, you know, it has been, it's been a British thing. It's been a cult British thing, I think, for obviously for decades. But it's suddenly broken worldwide. I was in Comic-Con a couple of years ago. And, I mean, I, I must have seen 100 people 
dressed as the TARDIS, never mind the Doctor. Yes. I mean, in America, the girls go in for the TARDIS mm. in a big way and they wear some amazing skirts and outfits. I mean, really, really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's a really great style. I mean, I'd just come back from one of those big things and uh -huh. I just couldn't, I was amazed by all the, the beauties that were TARDISes, TARDI. <laughs> TARDI. What well, is TARDI it? is actually, because TARDIS... It's an anagram, isn't it? So yeah. it can't, it's not yeah. Latin, but... What is it? Like uh, time and relative dimension in, in space? In space. Well done. Oh, you, you passed the test. <laughs> but I like the word tardi, but mm. it's, it's not... Um, well, does it have to be exact? No, it know. shouldn't be. <laughs> um, and I mean, what, what, what do you think of the, the Doctors, you know, since your own time? I mean, have you been kind of following their Yes, adventures? I have. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I thought uh, Christopher Eccleston was great. Mm. And uh, I was sad when he left. Um, I uh, then, then David arrived, and you know he, he's terrific. I knew David; I'd worked with him before. I mean, like a lot of Scots, we we're all a bit disappointed he didn't do it as a Scotsman. Uh, <laughs> he got, he got it in there a, a couple of times in the Queen Victoria episode. I remember yes, there was a little bit of. But he was playing a character. Yes, yes. He, he's showing showing off. Yeah, how he could do it. An Englishman doing a very good Scottish accent rather than a Scotsman mm. doing. But. Um, Apart from that, really. I, I mean, I remember when, when it was announced and I got phone calls from Scottish newspapers. Hello there, Sylvester. He's not doing it in Scottish. We're all upset. <laughs> anyway, he conquered them. He was great. And of course, now, when they told me a 12-year-old was going to be playing the doctor, I was so up in arms. No, no, this is wrong. You cannot be serious. And then this magical man comes along. His face is just astonishing. You know, he is 19 to 190. Yeah. You know, he's just amazing. I think he's the best kind of alien doctor we've ever had. Mm. Yeah, he, he's got the, the, the eccentricity and the yeah. otherworldliness. Yeah, just brilliantly. it's great. I mean, do you think they'll stop at 13 regenerations? Because we're already on 11, so it just seems a bit Yeah, tight. well, I think they might find a little door with a key and open it and there's another little note saying oh, just joking <laughs> I, I think the same actually at the moment it if it depends. keeps on, if it keeps going. on going this way I mean mm. they cannot they cannot keep seriously to the, I know a lot of Doctor Who fans will you know, be upset because mm. of you know they, they, it's the mythology they, don't, they believe is fact mm. <laughs> some yes a Doctor I, I was once in Minneapolis in the early days of my Doctor Who do Who time and I was on the stage all by myself and this man got up and said excuse me Doctor when you were in your third persona what were you thinking when you opened the planet the, the, the TARDIS door onto the planet Tharl I thought is this guy joking but he wasn't oh. and, he, and I thought who is my third Persona, it was John Pertwee. So I went, when I opened up the TARDIS door, I put on my thinking head. and I did a bit of that. And he sat down and said, thank you, Doctor, and sat down. He believed. Wow. You know, he, he, he got it. Yeah. I mean, it is true. I am John Pertwee. He is me. And you're Tom also. Baker. Well, in that case, you've been on this podcast before because we I had have. Matt Smith already. Exactly, yes. Wow. <laughs> And do you think there could ever be a female doctor? Because that was that was talked about a little bit this time as a possibility. Yeah, I don't know really. I, it's like that kind of thing. It's like uh, Sherlock Holmes. Do you think there would be ever a sh female Sherlock? Maybe. Would there be a male Mrs. Mrs. Marples? See, these are superheroes, yeah. intellectual heroes mm. that we've had, and and it's like I don't know. I mean, I think they should, maybe should try it. They could actually try it. You could easily do it. See what it looks like. Mm. I, mean, I, I would imagine it might well work, really. Yeah, how eccentric, because if you get the right eccentric actress, 
Yeah. Who's a delight. I think it's the eccentricity in the, in the acting that's part of it. And, the, of course, the very important part of the writing. Mm. Well, the writing's also been terrific on the on these last yeah. few series, especially. I, but, I, was, I mean, it was just because I was reminding myself of some of your episodes recently. And there's there's kind of, it feels like there's links to some of the more recent stuff. You know, yep. that they, they, they take ideas and they take notions and they sort of just play well, them in a different way. There were young people growing up watching it. I mean, they, you know, a lot of them are, you know, well. Fans, yeah. Complete diehard fans that start re, re um you know, gave a new life to Doctor Who. And uh, you can see, uh, you know, there's, there was one episode we did in the Second World War where Sophie Ace was carrying a baby and the baby was her mum or, and it was a timeline problem and I don't know, all that was going on. And then the same thing happens with, um, uh, in, in the Christopher Eccleston one with, uh, what's her name? It was Rose. Rose, yeah, yeah the glorious, wonderful mm. uh, actress, um, Forgotten her name. I'm Billy Piper. Names. Yeah, Billy. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful, glorious Billy Piper. And she had the same problem, but it was different. It was a granny or someone else. But it was that. That's completely what we did. And also the Second World War, the same kind of thing. Yeah. There are other areas I've noticed. Ping, that, we did that. And in even one of them, Matt Smith, I saw, they had the same monster. But then I suppose that's all right, you know, because mm. yeah, he was a monster of mine and he could easily come back. The, the, um, the Daleks came back, you know, yeah. and keep coming back. They'll never go away, will they? No. We're never going to defeat them. No, now that we know they can go up the stairs, we're never going to. <laughs> and it was in my episode they went up the stairs. Was it? Yes. Oh, I've forgotten that. Yes, everyone did. Because when they announced it or showed them going up the stairs with CGI, they mm. um, were saying the headlines, you know, they've gone up the stairs. I said, wait a minute, they did it in mine. Only with mine it was ridiculous because what happened was that uh, they actually used a real dialect. They didn't even build a you know a light one, mm. and they stuck two scaffolding poles in its side, and then through the wall they had another scaffolding pole going parallel with the stairs, and on the other end of the scaffolding poles they had ten men kind of trying to pull this and make it squig it all the way up the stairs. Oh my god! You goodness. can imagine it like that. It was just hilarious, but that was high technology for you in those days. But that's always been one of the hallmarks of the show, and it is something that they've kind of lost. I think with the with the you know the re- yes. recent renaissance is yeah. that it isn't quite as you know charmingly well with the, with the greatest of respect a bit shonky in terms of the effect. Yes, at times. It's, uh, yes, well, um, I, I agree. I used to be a, a great um, well, I am a great fan of Star Trek. Mm. Oh, I always get that mixed up with Wars. Anyway, <laughs> I have to think. Anyway, and uh, I, I mean, I I became a great fan of this rock, you know the. Polystyrene rock that appeared on every planet <laughs> in, in, in Star Trek and I wrote to it you know I became a, I started a fan club they used to change colour it was very adaptable you know kind of very kind of good at this rock but it never answered my fan mail I'm very disappointed that is a shame yeah <laughs> I couldn't remember the name of the one that really scared me and it was the curse of Fenric it was the people coming out of the water yeah that well, was that was eerie. really ah oh, those poor people they, they chose the coldest place in Britain to stick them underwater oh. which is um, down in South Devon it's, it's a way the water uh, goes into this bay it makes it incredibly cold and these people had to go they had to go down under mm. and then you know withhold their breath and then action and then kind of come out dripping with cold water inside through their rubbery bits and ugh, it's oh. horrible I always felt sorry for them yeah, I think you got the better better end of the deal there. You had a, you had quite a, quite a, a stylish uh, costume as the Doctor. I thought. Oh, we saw it. You know, well, compared to you know, 
the the giant scarf and the cricket whites and so on right. come before. Yes, I mean, I, I, I'd quite liked it, except for the pullover. I thought, I thought there were too many question marks. It was too obvious. Although it's very popular now and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know I can see the attraction because mm. it is kind of, it's quite cool, really. Yeah. Especially if you just wear it without all the rest. It's quite a cool pullover. But, mm. um, I, uh, yeah. My favourite bit was the, the umbrella, but that's because I invented it. It was my idea to have the question mark umbrella. I thought that was a little bit more subtle. Mm. Quite a few years ago, when uh, in the early days of the internet, the BBC decided to do a Doctor Who on the internet. And uh, in a way, the best way to describe it, when it, the finished product was, it was like having a comic only an audio audio comic. Mm-hmm. You could actually, you could see cartoon pictures on 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 the net. You could download those with the story, and it was Stephen Fry and myself, and I was the Doctor, and, and Sophie Aldred was Ace as well, and various other people. I was the Doctor in that, and it's that was called Death Comes to Time, and that was me. I died. The Doctor died, and um, it was. Uh, uh, it was agreed that um, Dan Friedman, who wrote it, directed it, created it, and did an amazing job on the sound. Stunning sound, as is on these podcasts. The soundscape is, is just great. He's so good at that, as well as the stories. But mm. um, I have to be nice about him because he'll be listening. Um, <laughs> uh, the, anyway, he, he, he said it was going to kill me off. And I said, well, he wanted to carry on. The, the idea was to make more you know, of this and turn... Stephen Fry, in a way, into the new Doctor. It was mm-hmm. kind of a segueing in, but uh, it didn't work out in the, in the end. Um, but I said if he carried on with it, he had to agree that I had to come back as a villain. Ooh. And so that's what's happened, really. I mean, you know, years later, he's now, because technology's moved on and he can now do it by himself without the BBC or anyone else, he can just do these podcasts. And um, uh, uh, I've come back, he's kept his promise, and I've come back as a villain. Hurrah. Is that sadly, funny? Stephen, I mean, not sadly, because the guy we've got doing his oh, God, amazing voice, but Stephen can't do it because he's too busy being in other things. Including The Hobbit. In The Hobbit. He's everywhere. I'd keep yeah. tripping over him everywhere I go. <laughs> Right, uh, Sylvester McCoy, thank you very, very much for coming in. I'm going to let you go and get back to New Zealand, I guess. Next oh, yes. No, I'm, I'm just a whole great adventure. I'm off to Chicago and then from Chicago to New Zealand and then New Zealand back and then the Royal Premier um, down the road uh-huh. um, in front of some royal or other. I'm not sure which one it will be. I think it might be Prince Charles. Oh, really? I was hoping for the younger ones. I thought they might have been quite... They'd be cool for it. I think that I think they'd be up for it. They've grown up with Lord of the Rings. You know, yeah. they should be there. But Prince Charles, I mean, he is... He, he is like a, a guy from the centre of uh, Hobbity land, isn't he? I think. <laughs> he kind of lives a Hobbity life way up there in Highfield. Is that what it's called or something? Something like Wherever that. he lives somewhere. Gloucester. Hobbity-ish, anyway. It is a Hobbity place. <laughs> and he seems like a Hobbity man. He talks to the... He talks to the flowers... Yeah. Yeah, we most likely talk the same language. This is great. You're going to have so much to talk about. Yes, we can. <laughs> well, you, some of my best friends are daisies. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note. His will be tulips. <laughs> Thank you very much. Pleasure. <laughs> All right, movie news time now. Phil, what have you got for us? Well, I'm sharing the story with James, actually, because we fought over it. And <laughs> no, neither of us would let go of it. Yeah, it's so not even just, now both hanging on to the both feel quite strongly about this. Yeah, um, but the story is something that's been kind of germinating for a while. Is the idea of a remake of Point Break? Okay, let's just pause now for everyone to shudder. Yeah. Please carry on. Uh, Catherine Bigelow's 1991 actioner, which was young, dumb, and as we all know, 
full of full other of, stuff. Full, full, of, of, full, of, full of Johnny Utah. <laughs> full of Johnny Utah's axed surfing antics and, and Patrick Swayze. And I think we're all in agreement that it's it's a, it's a classic of its genre. It's amazing. Um, it's being it's being remade by Alcon Entertainment, who also have the rights to Blade Runner, the possible Blade Runner kind of sequel. A, mm-hmm. a spin-off um, and they've got a director now a guy called believe it or not Ericsson Core, which is really very cool I can't think of a better action film director name than Ericsson Core. Or, or name for a, for a, for a or a mobile phone yeah, yeah. Um, he is predominantly known as a cinematographer and he's done work on films like Daredevil and The Fast and the Furious but he did The Invincible didn't he, he directed and he the, also directed, directed yes Invincible, Invincible which is Mark Wahlberg pretty competent Mark Wahlberg NFL drama okay. Um so he's the guy that's going to be bringing this to the screen. There's not really any great word on what the plot's going to involve or focus on. It's not going to be a straight remake, apparently. It's going to be more sort of around that world of extreme but, sports. But that's it, isn't it? They've abandoned the sort of surf and they've gone more sort of extreme sports. So it feels more triple X than Point Break to me, I'll be honest with you. It hasn't necessarily abandoned surfing. I don't think they've ever explicitly said that it's not so going to have pipelines out. It'll be or 50 year waves. You know. We're not ready for another 50 year wave. That's the real problem. Snowboard, Maybe that's what they have Snowboarding. There's no other criminals or something, is or it? Or like bowls. Yes. Is that an extreme? They're a little older. But also, we've, we've missed the, the key fact here, which is that it is written by none other than Equilibrium director Kurt Wimmer. <laughs> Come on! You mean ultraviolet director Shh. Kurt Wimmer? <laughs> Equilibrium director okay. Kurt Wimmer. Writer of such movies as Total Recall, the remake, <laughs> and Salt, which, Salt, which is fine. You know, yeah. competent. Yeah. Also, also, pretty equilibrium. Yeah, I know, equilibrium. Yeah. equilibrium. Uh, well, yeah. And ultraviolet. Look over there, it's a predator. <laughs> so that's what's happening and um, we wrote a new story because as I say this has been in the pipeline <clears throat> hey. pun intended for a while and back in 2001 we wrote a story some of the comments on our on our on our website were fairly passionate should we say in fact there were a lot of them I'm just flicking through a few of them now one of them is oh dear god triple exclamation mark why question mark gonna be shit we all know it I would say who knows obviously what they've seen is that you know the Fast and Furious franchise has so much gas in the tank and uh, mm-hmm. it's doing so well and this is a kind of a precursor to that whole thing isn't well, it well, Fast I mean, and Furious is a remake of Point exactly. Break essentially so this is a remake exactly. of a remake of Point so, Break so you know yeah. it is on a everything I say is a pun at the moment it is literally on that wave of um, <laughs> of that sort of you know bra- I mean brainless in the best possible way brainless kind of action fodder so anyway there it is I make it Edgar Wright made an interesting point he was on Twitter this morning saying the thing is that Point Break shouldn't have worked it was a ridiculous idea that fell into place because of the marvel that is sort of Reeves Busey Swayze you know and Bigelow, Bigelow obviously uh, and that's lightning in a bottle and I just think it's not something you can easily Recapture. Well, I mean, the first Fast and the Furious didn't really. You know, no, it didn't. It's, it's nowhere near as good as Point Break. It's very so-so. I mean, our love, and we use the love kind of quite generously here, of the Fast and Furious franchise has been kicked off by Fast Five. I think, let's be honest, two, three, and four are incredibly so-so, verging on oh no. One's decent. One is decent. One is all right. I'd call one Four's passable. Okay. Four, four kind of brought it back a little bit. But Four's yeah. better than two or three. But you can hear from the tone of our voices, it's yeah. a bit of a, yeah, okay. So with that in mind, I, I gather this was meant to be a sequel originally, but then they realised that the sequel didn't work as a concept, so they decided to just go, oh, well, sod also, it. Also, they'd, they'd lost Swayze. They were, they were yeah. going to have Bodie return and... and with the that sad would be death of Swayze, that's are they going to do hat tips? Are we going to have you know the dog incident? We're going to have massive sandwiches. I mean, are they going to do that? Firing they into should, the air. They should throw money at Keanu Reeves until he comes back and plays the was it John C. 
McGinley rule. Uh, yes, indeed. John McGinley. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> a great, terrible idea. It's an awful idea. Please don't do that. But if you do, please give me a cut. <laughs> I'd somebody... love to see John McGinley back, to be honest. Maybe Jake he Busey could play playing Gary Busey. Busey. Role. Everyone can move. <laughs> oh, it could be. Yeah, it could be. It could be. It's, it's a point break the next generation. It's yeah. amazing. Okay, we're coming around to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting what you say about the Fast franchise, because we talk about this a lot in the office. It's like, do is everyone in on the joke about Fast Fast and Furious? It is obviously fun, but it is does have its tongue in its cheek. It really Point does. had that a bit, but it was in that era of like pre-ironic Yeah, cinema. it was it was po-faced, I think, more than yeah. you know, tongue-in-cheek. And but, it's funny because I asked Catherine Bigelow this, and, mm-hmm. and she, I think, it was taken seriously. They were taking yeah. it seriously. Yeah. It wasn't. It era, looked silly, jumping yeah. out of a plane with no parachute. It looks a bit silly now. Things have changed a little bit. Sensibilities have changed. I don't think you can carry that in the same way in this day and age as perhaps you could then without adopting the, the slightly wry humour of Fast and Furious. So that would be yeah. the key. Just to nitpick, um, jumping out of a plane without a parachute has always been a bit silly. I just Even looked, in the 90s. It looks like a sensible option for Keanu at that particular moment Fair to enough. me. I would Fair have enough. certainly advised it. He did, he did look quite conflicted, though, just before he, he jumped did, out. Yeah. His, uh, you could the, tell because he pulled that conflicted face. He conflicted face, face yeah. and went, whoa, whoa <laughs> babes. And we should say, I mean, there is humour in Point Break as well. There's that, that you know, the great response to uh, McGinley's question about, have either of you guys anything useful to tell me? And Keanu I just goes, my first I caught today. my first tube today. Sorry. <laughs> The correct term is babes. Babe. So there's lots of humour in it. Don't get me wrong. It's just yeah. not the kind of tongue-in-cheek, ironic yes, humour in the same way. Babe. But you know, obviously they'd update the ex-presidents. Who would play Bush? You know, who would want the Bush mask? Hard to say. That's a good question. Are there enough? Or to update update are there enough ex-presidents? Presumably. Well, there's more than. Well, there since used to be. Well, so those that they ended with Reagan, right? Yeah. yeah. That's the end with Bush. Reagan. It was Reagan. 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 So there's Bush. Reagan mask. Clinton. Bush. Obama. Obama. So there's yeah. not. There's four. They'd be short. Well, so they like still have Reagan. You know, yeah. they might go retro and pull in George Washington. <laughs> Taft. <laughs> Lincoln. Daniel <laughs> Day-Lewis. I would love a Get Taft Daniel Day-Lewis to play Lincoln. Yeah. Could be excellent. Uh, one person on Twitter, I just want to mention him. Uh, Will, I've got to pronounce your name wrong, Will. Will Chich has suggested a crossover between Breaking Bad and Point Break for Point Breaking Bad, where you make <gasps> meth and surf tubes at the same time. Wow. It sounds like a feat of balancing, to I, be perfectly honest. I like it. Mm. What about a cross between Breaking Bad, Point Break, and Black Swan, Point Breaking Bad? Gross Point Breaking Bad? Oh, God. Let's, let's just move stop. on. I don't, okay. obviously don't have a story because that was part of mine, but I heard that uh, the Margaret Thatcher died this week, so that, that's a thing. That's but a more story. importantly, more importantly, Wesley Snipes got out of prison. He did. And that's you're pretty very exciting. excited by this. I aren't was. You? Passenger 58 is go. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Blade no. 4. Blade 4. Everything. Just, oh, just it's gold. It's all gold. Everything's gold. Conair, uh, I think, is awaiting him. The Snipes returns. Oh. Conair. Oh, anyway, um, my, my very brief news story, which, again, we've already touched on, is uh, part of the Fast and Furious franchise, which is unfortunately a very, very big deal. Even if you hate it, it was Universal's biggest movie, Fast Five, when it came out. And so they're very keen to make money off it, I think it's fair enough to say. Fast and Furious 6 is coming out later this year. It's set in London. It features doppelgangers, tanks, exploding planes, you know, the usual. Fast and Furious 7, they want to do very, very quickly. They want to get it off the bat. Unfortunately, Justin Lin, who is the director of both Fast 5 and what is not actually officially known as Fast 6, it's actually officially known as Fast and Furious 6, has pulled out. He, he has run out of gas in his tank and doesn't want to do the next one because he just has run out of puff. In steps James Wan, who was the guy who also did quite a few of the Saw movies. He beat competitions such as Kick-Ass 2's Jeff Wadlow, The Karate Kid's Harald Swart, Contraband's, God, this is tough for me, Baltazar Kormakur. 
Uh-huh. I've just stuck in some Roald yeah. Dahl's in there. And I he don't know won- what that accent was, but yes, that is his name. Thank you very much. Uh, this, this is despite him doing mainly horror movies so far in his career, though uh, Death Sentence had a little bit more action in it. Um, still, it means the Fast and the Furious 7 is definitely still happening, and yet we still don't know who's going to be doing the Luke Hobbs spin-off. So. Mm. Well, no, the... We had James Wan in for a web chat uh, a few years ago. He came in with Lee Wanell for was it Insidious? Wan and Wanell. Indeed, and um, and he was he was a really he seemed like a really fun guy. So he might be the kind of guy to have the right sort of energy for this film. You know, he had a lot of he had a lot of bounce that day. He and Wanell uh, competed in a in a sort of speed typing competition to try and get their answers up in the web chat as soon as possible. Wouldn't let anyone else type for them, um, and uh, and yeah, we're we're a lot of fun. So you know, based on that very scanty evidence I think he might be kind of Would cool you, you're telling me his typing was both fast and indeed Furious. accurate oh yes that Sorry. also <laughs> um, so that's you know possibly promising um, I have heard rumours online which I'm in no way going to s- repeat in this podcast about what happens at the end of Fast 6 and how that sets up the villain for Fast 7 if they are true it will be monumental and if that the is true The Rock turns out to be Vin Diesel's father That's <gasps> <laughs> true It's a spoiler um, and if that, But if those those rumours are true then, then Fast 7 should be something pretty action spectacular and, and I hope that one's up to it You've already said too much Alan I'm not going to say anything more Okay, uh, this is an actor who broke through with Neil LeButes in The Company of Men and has built a career flipping between character actor and honest-to-God leading man. Heck, he was in the core and emerged unscathed, which should show you just how good he is. He hustled for big tobacco and thank you for smoking, went to the bad in The Dark Knight, and now he's playing the President of the United States of America in Olympus Has Fallen. Aaron Eckhart came in to talk to Ali and Chris about the role. We are delighted to be joined in the pub with by Mr. Aaron Eckhart, star of Olympus Has Fallen. Now, should I refer to you as Mr. President, or are you just, do you like not really bother with the formalities anymore? Well, it's sort of like the sir. Uh, I prefer it, uh, Mr. President. Let me ask you, you lived in England for a while. Yes, I lived um, in Surrey. I lived in Walton-on-Thames and went to school in Cobham at an inter- international school there. Uh, and this was 81 to 86. Uh, so I was ripped from... The sunny shores of California, where I was just surfing and getting into girls and all that sort of stuff, and uh, I was brought to Ripley, uh-huh. uh, where we lived in a pink flat in Ripley, <laughs> until we made other arrangements in Walton on Thames. It was a lot of fun. At first, I was, it was dreadful because it was such a cult- culture shock for me. Yeah. My dad uh, was a businessman. But then, you know, we were seeing any band we want and Hammersmith Odeon. We're going, you know, uh, you know, going all over Europe and skiing mm. everywhere and stuff. So it was a lot of fun. Started acting here. Uh, I okay. was playing I was playing rug, rugby, of all things. Uh, <laughs> uh, and one day I was uh, going to rugby practice and I saw a flyer for um, an aud- audition for Charlie Brown, The Doctor Is In. Right. And I don't know why I took a left when I should have took a right. <laughs> and I went in, and I, because there was no competition, I got Charlie Brown. And I had seven singing solos. And anyway, that started off. I was, I think, 13 or 14. Then I did another play and fell in love. Mm-hmm. There was a beautiful girl named Maysoon who was out there somewhere in, in England still. Mm-hmm. And um, she was in the play. Uh, and uh, I, I thought, wow, I can <laughs> get chicks doing this. <laughs> and I so that's and it really hasn't changed so that could have been a rug- <laughs> we, we we could be talking to a, a rugby star right now well actually no I mean God, rugby I was watching it yesterday on television a little bit it's it's such a beautiful game but it's brutal but uh, I was more 
I played football when I was growing up. I really enjoy football. Uh, one of the consolation prizes for me in that in respect, not to any disrespect to England, was that I got a, an electric guitar. So awesome. I started playing electric guitar. I uh, started taking lessons, and I was a songwriter. That's mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. I loved writing words, lyrics. And so every day after school, I'd spend the whole rest of the afternoon at, in my room uh, writing songs. My mother was a, is a writer, mm-hmm. and her mother uh, wrote poetry and that. And so I thought that that was my natural extension. That's where I wanted to go. I wasn't any good at school. You know, it's funny because, you know, when you're an actor or something, people say, well, why don't you be a lawyer or a doctor? But <laughs> acting was the safe bet to songwriting. You understand? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, songwriting is so impossible dream that, that acting seemed like the, the, the safe route to take. As I moved around the world, I lost all my songs. So you've never been tempted to try and remember any of them? And- well, I do. Some of them I remember. And sometimes when I meet famous musicians, like I offered Sheryl Crow a song the other day. She didn't take to it. It's an excellent <laughs> idea for a song. But uh, she, So I'm going to try to pawn that off on somebody else. <laughs> I love the idea of you going around to parties and just pitching songs. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely how it happens. I remember um, there's a country artist named Tim McGraw, you know, in yeah, Faith yeah, Hill. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I was at a party one time with them. And there they were, and I just could not resist. Of course, I was introduced to them, and I say, you know, Tim, got a song for you. You know, sang it in his ear, <laughs> you know, while his wife's in there watching, you know. Um, and I was dead serious about it. I think it's a great lyric, and I think he yeah. could do it. Yeah, it's, it, that's a lot of fun for me. I think that's the height of success for me was if I could get a song made. Now I'm starting, as I'm going into directing mm. and producing and stuff, I'm starting to write songs for my own little ah. movies. So that I can, nobody can tell me no, and I can, I can get published. You know what I mean? So that's uh, that's what I've been doing lately. So you're going down very much the, the, I guess, the John Carpenter route of doing your own scores, and Clint Eastwood does his own scores as well. That's so right. Yeah, they're talented though. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Well, you're clearly talented as well. Well, I don't know. I think I haven't said I haven't heard any of your stuff. I mean, but no, I don't know if you want you to want sing to something sing? to us now, <laughs> or just give us the chords and uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, it's E and G. You only need two chords to write a song. Um, so from there, acting really. So that was the, the safest bet. Um, and and how did you develop from that point on? From thirteen years old and well, doing Charlie Brown. You know, I mean, it didn't come easy. I'll tell you that. Nobody mm-hmm. ever told me that I was talented or that I, you know, should keep going. You know, that's, I, I, I throw that out there for all the people out there that, mm. that, that think that you know, anybody successful has been, you know, told that they're the greatest and all that sort of stuff. That mm. wasn't my case. And, you know, it was more persistence than anything. You know, I really just kept on going. And um, finally, when I was 27, I had met Neil Labute yeah. uh, in college. He was one of my professors. And uh, I had done his plays and he called me up one day and, uh, he said, uh, hey, Aaron, a couple friends of mine just got in a car accident and got a settlement of $50,000, and they're giving us half if we want to make a film. And uh, so we said yes, and uh, interestingly enough, he said, okay, you play the character that I didn't eventually play. I, and I got off book. I studied for months on it, and he called me up, and he says, I can't find the other actor that's going to play Chad. I, he won't call me back. And he says, why don't you play Chad? And I said, Neil, I'm, I'm totally memorized on this other thing. I'm ready to go. It's, you know, can't do this to me. And I said, I can't do it. You'll have to find somebody else. And uh, I hung up the phone. I looked around in my apartment in New York, which is about as big as your studio. <laughs> which is huge, by the way. Yeah, it was just Covenous. huge. Yeah, we can almost turn around in here. <laughs> and uh, I said, what the hell yeah. am I thinking? I called Neil back. I said, I'll do it. And uh, that was the movie that, um, you know, got me from 
not having an, a film agent to wow. being at the eye doctors and, uh, <laughs> and my phone ringing and Sean Penn calling me up. Wow. Okay. Uh, how do you take that call? Interesting. I said, just sec, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> I need to pitch this guy a song. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's, in, you know, so that really changed my life. So it, interesting. That's how my evolution, and, and now it's just been, it keeps on going. Because that's interesting because Chad uh, in that film is, seems such a fit for you. I can't imagine you playing the other part at all. I'll tell you a secret. I'll tell you a secret that not many people know. I think it's out there, but. Uh, when we did the play in, I did the play mm. in the Company of Men in college, and Neil played Chad. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. And Neil, if people are familiar with his work, um, Neil is a good actor, and he's really yeah. good. And uh, I said, Neil, I mean, I can't do Chad after you've done Chad. You're the best at it. You wrote it. You know it better than anybody. Yeah. And um, and that's why I was reluctant to do it because I felt like I couldn't do as good a job of, as him. But uh, luckily he just directed it and, and, and we found Matt Malloy to play the other character. Was there another reluctance on your part as well as that Chad is such a, a sociopathic monster, I guess? Was it, were there worries that that might in some way reflect negatively on how people perceive you as an actor going forward? Or well, did you not care about that stuff at that point? I, people were perceiving me as their house painter. <laughs> I mean, I've been, I, you know, people are asking me for, you know, directions and stuff like that. So I was like, I wasn't being perceived. So I was just happy to get an acting job, mm. you know, and uh, it's, you know, let me tell you something afterwards, though. We walked out of that theater. We went to Sundance. Thank God we got into Sundance, which was huge. I walked out of the theater and you could hear a pin drop and stood back in the in the wings with uh or in the hallway with neil mm. and uh then i was perceived ah. and it was uh perceived poorly oh really oh man i mean slaps how could you i mean you know if if people could have you know put saliva to the extension of what their thoughts they would have been spitting on me yeah Christ. in fact it wasn't only last week or two when i was on a press tour in new york for olympus that uh some woman said that, uh, who was helping me do my press, said that, you know, she could barely speak to me. You know, and this is near 15 years later. Wow. Yeah. It's I, funny you say that because you play roles for me that make me think, I bet you have a hard time walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> don't take that the wrong way. But, you know, I love Nick Naylor, like, a lot. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Thank You For Smoking. But there are lines that you say that you've had to say that must make you think, I am going to get it in the neck for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. But you know what? I've come to realize that that's my strength. You know, I've tried to do different things and some things more successfully and less successfully. But I, I'm a 40 regular suit. And so just like an Olympus has fallen the president, they say, who, who fits a 40 regular? <laughs> Put him in it. And that's been me. You know what I mean? But there are times, um, like, for example, when I was doing with the cancer kid, in uh, Thank You For Smoking, I had to do a talk show with the yeah. cancer kid with his bald child here. Yeah. That I don't think he had cancer. I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I just amped it up and, uh, you know, at, I high-fived him at the end when, they, when she... They, it, anyway, so I embraced that, that sort of thing because I think the audience gets a kick out of it. So the high-five wasn't scripted? Oh, no. Oh, no, no. A lot of it wasn't scripted, how I uh, just <laughs> embraced him. And I think I had the talk show host at the time and all the audience, I think they wanted to kill me. 
They oh, hated me. Because <laughs> you, to be fair, in that film you have some absolute kick-ass lines that aren't in any way like bad necessarily. But I have a bachelor's in kicking butt and taking names. <laughs> it's just a flat-out cool line. I mean. Yeah, and uh, and during that, I think the visual on that is that yeah, the hitting a home run. <laughs> yeah, that's good writing, and that's why Jason is Jason Reitman's gone on to have yeah. such a successful career. I mean, it's funny because I've done I don't know how many movies I've done. Some, like I said, have more successful than others. But thank you for smoking. I've been in I've been in Botswana, Africa, in the airport there, which is basically no a mud way. hut. Yeah, and people coming up to me—that's their number one film, because <laughs> I think that you just don't get films like this very often. You know. So it was slightly frustrating then, because uh, in Olympus Has Fallen, you uh, your ability to kick ass is somewhat curtailed by the fact you spent most of the movie tied to a, a railing. Is that was that was that you, you were yeah. itching to break that? Yeah, I, I can break these chains. I can do that. Well, yeah. I mean, I had to suspend my belief. I mean, I don't think that railing <laughs> would have lasted too long. Um, you know, it's. I think the challenge in the part was to create energy while you're tied up to a. Yeah. You know, and 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 Jerry's out there, you know, taking care of business and all that sort of stuff. So it was very important that you have a, a, a counterbalance to that. You know, when you get inside the, this this bunker, mm. that there's still a lot of energy and intensity there. That was the challenge. You know, three weeks tied up to a railing. Um, you know, waiting for some guy to save you. It's not in my DNA. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, that was good. That's why our Antoine came in and Melissa Leo and the other actors. We, you know, really tried to make it real for us. Yeah. And I know you guys were up against the, uh, the, the gun in this one because I, th- I think it took 10 months from the start of filming to hitting cinemas. Yeah. there. You know the reason for that. I am aware of uh, there was another. It was because of White House Down? Was that yeah, the, the I attempt think so. To, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hollywood comes out in the, it's sort of the, uh, the Noah's Ark effect, uh, you know, or the, you know, when the penguins... One penguin gets an idea, then across the pond, all the other penguins get an idea. It's sort of like Hollywood, <laughs> you know. So we were. There's another film that's uh, starring. I think Tatum, J, uh, Tatum, Channing, Channing Tatum, Johnny Tatum, yeah, Channing Tatum, Channing Tatum. Yeah. I got. Did I just switch those names? Tatum Channing. Either way works. Excuse <laughs> me. I see. I'm, I'm showing my age. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, and Jamie Fox yeah. is going to play the president. So, yeah. uh, you know, obviously it'll come out and be a different film. But uh, I think we're happy that we got out when we did. Have you had any word from the Obama administration or anyone at the White House about how you did as president? <laughs> we need you as backup. <laughs> yeah, just in case. Uh, um, no, I mean, you know, I sat on that desk real well. Just, you know, crossed my legs just so. It was perfect. It was beautiful. Actually, when Morgan Freeman, when I was leaning on the desk, was when this everybody that's listening to this interview will see, and uh, I was leaning on the desk and trying to be very serious and think about, you know, huge, very important issues. Mm. And then Morgan Freeman walked in and I was like, Mr. President. I'm like, oh, wait, wait a second. I'm the president. Sit down there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like people started calling him the president. I'm like, hey, 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 over here. That was a different movie, guys. Yeah. Different movie. In the movie, I, I get shot. Damn it. So I did the first take of that, you know, and I, you know, acted my guts out and you know, thought I was brilliant. <laughs> then I went back behind the monitor expecting praise. And uh, there's our, our Ricky Jones, our, our consultant there, and he comes up to me, great guy, and he says, Aaron, he says, when you get shot, says, your, your, your mouth becomes dry and you start to hyperventilate, and he you know, told me how it was. And I said, Ricky, how do you know? <laughs> <laughs> and he lifts up his shirt and he shows me the entry wound and the exit wound. I go, oh my God. take two. <laughs> It's been shot like seven times. <laughs> it's 
funny because you talk to these guys long enough and you just let them go and all of a sudden you got three movies deep you know you're like hey can I buy the rights to that movie Antoine's making another movie with them really Jerry's making a movie with them oh my god yeah I mean really these guys because it's so exciting what they do which is more secretive a Secret Service guy or a Chris Nolan set now Chris called me into his office and he said Aaron how about the how about taking a look at this Harvey Dent character hmm I said, okay. So I went home, and then the car pulls up with the assistant in it and uh, the script, and it's handed off to me, and I'm given three hours to, or how many, however long to read it, inside of my house, and I read the script, and it's just wonderful. Give it back, and then you're issued your own script with your name on it. You know, cast died, or however they do that, you know, the water print. Yeah. I never carried that entire script with me at, at, at one time. Because I was so worried, you know, I would split the script up, tape, take the, fr the front off and the back off, and I would just carry the part that I needed because I was so worried about me being the one that gave up, you know, the plot <laughs> of The Dark Knight. Yeah, that would be, uh, it's truly terrifying. But three I, months in, what can they do to you, right? They'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know them, man. This is serious business. <laughs> we'll have to let you go, Aaron. But um, just one last thing about the uh, the whole Dark Knight experience. Did the script change a lot then from that, from that, from that one no. you read for over three hours? No. And I'll tell you, this is important for people to understand out there, is that when you're making a movie, whether a Hollywood movie or whatever, you know, I'm talking the script changes and that it goes through are just, you know, I mean, legendary. I mean, how there's 20 names on a script and, and then there's all these ghost writers and then you're making up, you know, on the day. Mm. You're making up your lines. Chris Nolan's script, word for word, is on the screen. <laughs> and I don't know if there's a scene or a page that was cut out of that movie. Mm. Now, that's how expert Chris Nolan is. And that's what his words mean that's how thorough his script is mm. and how good it is and when you're looking at a script and the entire thing is up on this it just doesn't happen these days mm. so uh, that's how good Chris is so did it take you by surprise when you're flicking through the script that Harvey became Two-Face in the movie or did you think he, you know, did you think he was going to be set up for the third or well, I was flipping through that script. I thought, well, Chris is going to give him, you, you got the, the Jokers in it. You got you have obviously Batman's in it. You have uh, Gary's character. I thought, well, okay, I'll be an extra in the movie. That'll be great. I'll be in Batman. <laughs> I started reading the script. And I go, jeez. Yeah. This is uh, a full character in here. I mean, he isn't, he's got an arc and he's very important to the plot of the movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started counting my blessings. Um, you know, that I died... There's so much to tell in the Batman series, but, you know, with Heath, you know, and I never had any regrets. I never thought that I was going to go on, you mm. know. Um, I had no intention. That's not really how I've lived my life. Um, however, if Chris would have asked me, I would have obviously done it. But I think that Batman is so special because of Heath mm. and what he did and his commitment to that role. Um, when we were making that film, you know, you have Gary Oldman, who is arguably one of the greatest actors in the world right now. Uh, and uh, and he's watching Heath, you know, with admiration. You know, that tells you something. And by the very nature of the film, I mean, you only really got one scene with Heath. Yeah. But it was an interesting scene because we were in the hospital bed, you know, and, and I didn't have much to say in that scene. And then uh, so I sat down, I laid down in the bed there. And, um, you know, when they're lighting and all that sort of stuff, you get there and getting into character. And, you know, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And so... And then Heath came in, of course, in character, and 
And he just started walking around me and walking around me and saying his words and mumbling and walking around me and walking around me and saying his words and saying, and then all of a sudden, boom, my hand came up like this. And Heath caught my hand. And then he would walk around, walk around. So it was such an organic process about two actors working off of each other, having no idea what's wow. going to happen in this scene, yeah. that it was so natural and it became electric. Mm. And so I only had one scene with Heath, but it's my favorite scene in the movie. Oh, it's an amazing scene. The way that uh, he deliberately forgets Rachel's name. Yeah. Like, oh, what's, what's her name? What's her name? And then you... you bark Rachel at him and there's yeah. just so much rage in that and pain and loss in that in that one word yeah and we did some improvisation in there and he was so in character that everything that he said was dynamite could have been used it was so good oh fantastic uh, Aaron it's been an absolute pleasure sir thanks so much for coming in thank you cheers Hi, Rosie. Uh, actually, a really nice guy. Uh, he He's a very chatty, very friendly man. So, uh, I think it's on to the main event night. Uh, it's finally time for this week's reviews. Uh, and it's a big one this week because Tom Cruise returns to our screens in a new science fiction epic. Um, Oblivion comes from writer-director Joseph Kaczynski, who made this his follow-up to Tron Legacy over a wealth of studio offers of various franchises. Um, and this one sees Cruise play Jack Harper, who's an engineer on a devastated future Earth, who's just keeping the last few machines running after humanity takes up residence on the moon of Titan following an alien attack. Uh, he and his partner Victoria, played by Andrea Riseborough, are just waiting to be moved upstairs in their turn, but as they fen- fend off alien stragglers, it begins to appear that not all is as it seems. So, what do we make of this one? Obviously, it's a science fiction film. It's based on his unpublished comic and mm. his unpublished novel, if I'm right in saying. That's uh, right, I back to, what, 2005? Yes. Think, something like that. Uh, which is, obviously, I think, because lots, lots of people are saying that it's quite derivative. It borrows a lot from, uh, I don't know. I listed you know about I 20. Yeah. Can I even say what it borrows no, from? No, I clearly there's can't. There's a couple that you it can't borrows from, It book. borrows from some films that we can't really mention. 2001 is a clear, it, clear influence. It does indeed. Wally, in fact, it seems to borrow from. I can um, mention one as well. La Jete, the Chris Marker 30 minute short, uh, short film. Yeah. Well, so the basic setup is that uh, Earth has been destroyed in a big alien conflict, uh, and it seems the only people left are uh, Andrea Riceborough and Tom Cruise, who are sort of the last custodians of the planet. Um, there are huge sort of fusion reactors sort of strip mining the oceans, and there are little sort of heavily armed droids running around, and Tom Cruise's job is to go out and sort of uh, fix it, Felix them, uh, <laughs> and, and, and keep them running, um, while Andrea Riceborough sits up in her what looks like an apple store in the sky um, and, and make sure everything's running well uh, and that's pretty much it and occasionally they have radio contact with Melissa Leo who's uh, who's on a space station uh, but the, the sort of the point of it is you get downstairs there's the uh, it's not too much of a spoiler to say there are other humans around uh, Morgan Freeman and his little band are still squirreled away somewhere on earth um, but it's an odd one it's not a huge interstellar war film it's not you know, it's quite slow-paced. It feels like a mood piece, in fact. Mm-hmm. And those are my favourite parts of the film. It's quite slow-paced, quite deliberate. And I think when he's wandering around the sort of the wasteland that is, you know, his little corner of, what's well, New York, it's isn't New it? New York, the, yeah. the New York wasteland. Uh, it, there's a wonderful sense of atmosphere just in the sort of the desolation of it and the loneliness. And there's, as a scene, I know some people found it a bit twee, but there's a bit where he's standing in the sort of stadium and he's in his head reenacting the last Super Bowl game and sort of imagining it. And it's just the ruin 
that is the stadium around him. You know, I quite like And then he goes up to his sort of real, sort of strange clinical observation post in the sky. Um, Ollie, who reviewed this film for us, described the drones as sounding very much like an angry speak and spell, which I thought was (laughs) fabulous, and that's exactly what they are. But it's a really interesting thing. It does twist and turn all over the place. The plot is nowhere near what it seems, so you can't really talk about it without ruining it. I did very much enjoy it. I think it's got quite thin characterization. Tom Cruise is, I think has been observed, is just playing Tom Cruise. And the other characters who sort of appear throughout it are very very thinly sketched it's mm. you know you, I think you glory in the setting you glory in the setting and the setup, and, and I think you do have to um, accept some things which are perhaps a little hard to stomach yeah. it's it's true I agree that um, Joseph Kaczynski who obviously made Tron Legacy is uh, he has incredible sort of design appreciation which lends itself to amazing visuals, mm. which this well, film has in abundance. Mm. Um, it's, the, he may, seems to make films at the moment that, that feel like they should have their own genius bar. So you can go <laughs> afterwards and they can like explain plot, plot points that didn't make, and this has a few plot holes. Well, yeah, but, but actually, for, for what it is, I thought it had very few. I thought it was quite well plotted. I mean, you know, yeah, there, there's the sort of, you know, by the fridge moments afterwards where yeah. you suddenly realise, hang on, that, there, there's a little bit of a mistake there. But for what it is, I thought it was pretty well plotted out and I thought the, the, the deliberate pace of the first half of the film allowed him to kind of get across quite a lot of information as to the setup, so that the latter half made a bit of sense I know I was just going to say that it, that it does have the odd plot hole but it didn't they didn't really matter all that much mm. I think the bigger problem was the, the characterization mm. is very thin um, it, it felt like maybe it was a draft away from really meaty characters which it needs because it's kind of like a three-hander for a lot of it with Andrea Riseborough, Cruz, and, and um, Kurilenko, who again, they're all really good actors, um, but maybe they need a bit more, a I bit think more to work he with. Has, he has difficulty with the emotional honesty. I think the, the relationship between the Cruz character uh, and Riseborough's character, I think that's quite hard to believe, but the relationship between him and the Kurilenko character is almost impossible to really accept. Mm. And I think that, that weakens the film dramatically for me. By the way, Riseborough plays uh, the drone inspector slash fixer that is Tom Cruise's character's Partner man at base. Boss, yeah, yeah, she's kind of the guy, who, the person who's back at base checking, oh, wait, we've got a broken down thing over here, go check that out. And she's in communication with the, uh, the Tet, which is this giant space station where Melissa Leo is delivering orders from. I think Andrea Riseborough was very good in this film. Yeah. I think in a role where, as we've just agreed, is very thin. Mm. She brought it. There were moments when I went, I actually don't think that was actor crying. You are, you you really got yourself messed mm. up with this. Um, I personally thought that, yes, it was very derivative, both stylistically, music cues I heard direct from The Dark Knight and Inception. Like I, I felt like I'd seen and heard a lot of it before, but like a bag of marbles, it kind of was all mixed together and became its own new beast. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote down about 20 references at the end, <laughs> including computer games, where I went, well, that's from there. Like the, the design of the drones, which are these kind of spherical floating orbs, reminded me a lot of Wheatley from Portal 2. They have these guns that <laughs> pop out of the side and, um, well, kill things. I'm glad I saw it on the IMAX, is one point I'd like to make. It's yeah. visually something that you can really revel in and feast on. Shot for IMAX, then. Exciting. It is, and it, it's, it's a movie that's worth it. it. It has kind of this silt after the, the, the war 
between the aliens and um, humanity. Earth used all its nukes, and the result of that is, as well as the moon exploding, just the world going out of its axis and silt and salt and all that stuff covering the world, apart from obviously all the biggest landmarks which remain, so you can go, oh, there's the Empire State Building, brilliant. And I believed it all. It was shot on Iceland, and I, I, I kind of really invested in that, and yeah. I saw mm. it as real. But that's that's key, actually. The, the, the Icelandic shoot really sort of brings that film for me. I mean, because a green screen production just would not have yeah. done it. Just the reality of the landscape, I mean, which is absolutely stunning. Similar to Prometheus, you know, which had yeah. some Iceland shooting as well, and, and also those huge sets. So when there was a bit that was CG, it didn't feel quite so, you know, jarring. Mm. What I took away, <clears throat> I think, is that although it does feel very derivative and there are obvious moments where you're like, oh, that's from that, that's from that, that's from that, it did feel like its own thing in the sense that, like you say, it's it's a kind of more of a mood piece than you'd expect. Mm. Mm. It felt like the exact midway point between like Tatooine and Tarkovsky. <laughs> and, and, and I think maybe that's also where it falls down in the sense that when you watch from like Solaris or the remake or the original, you know, you ha- you're investing in the character. You know, he's, yeah. his dead wife reappears to him. And there's diff- there's thematic similarities, I think, here in the relationships, but there's nothing like the same emotional weight. No. Uh, that, that said I'm just pleased that I watched the film I enjoyed the film I was pleased that I'd seen it all that kind of positive stuff I also thought this is an original sci-fi property yeah. which works and yeah. I'm pleased with it and I'm happy I saw it there are so many where you go wow you really dropped the ball on that yeah, one but also, also it's an original sci-fi property that doesn't openly beg a sequel I mean I'm sure there's room there if they wanted to but you know it, it, it isn't setting itself up to be the first of a franchise and mm. frankly these days that's really really it's refreshing it's also nice to see a sort of a sci-fi summer blockbuster that isn't massively commercial in mm. that way I mean it's more commercial than Moon and obviously Solaris but uh, it, you know it, you're right it, it's not there just to line pockets he, he had a certain amount of creative freedom with that and, and I think it, that comes yeah. across yeah. I feel like some it might get a bit of a raw deal with some critics but I think that it should be applauded because it has a lot of ideas yeah. and it tries to do something a bit different and visually likewise and uh, we're always here saying oh it's another remake it's the same thing again and again and again so when something comes yeah. along that maybe doesn't quite work like it possibly should but still has a big ambition yeah and this is I think there's there's two films this week that fall into that category for me at least Um, then I think they should be kind of applauded absolutely and that we gave that this three stars which is we always say this a recommendation it's like a very rosy three stars to me (laughs) I very much recommend seeing that at the IMAX if you can absolutely um, it's a good time for sci-fi, actually, because I also saw a story this morning that they're making a TV show of Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke, which is a terrific book, so uh, look out for that. Anyway, back to reviews. Next, we have The Place Beyond the Pines, which sees Bradley Cooper and Ryan Gosling clash in a sprawling, decade-spanning tale. Uh, Gosling is a stunt rider who finds himself a father after a fling with Eva Mendes's waitress, and Cooper is the ambitious young cop who will not be in favour of Gosling's plans to become a bank robber in order to support his new family. Uh, this all comes from Gosling's blue Valentine director Derek C. in France, but is it any good, James? What do it you is. I um I really like this actually. Um, it's not at all what I expected it to be. Um, I'm going to start weirdly with the negative side of this. I think one of the things that everyone loved so much about Blue Valentine was, and we used the phrase emotional honesty just a few minutes ago, but that it did feel very real. Mm. It was very believable. You absolutely bought into the characters' motivations, their desires, their fears, all of that. I think that's the one thing this film doesn't quite convince with, in that you're not on board with their motivations. They make questionable decisions you can't really find the through line with. Um, 
but that aside, it's actually it, it's a wonderful film. Gosling is 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 really great, and there's uh, I mean, it's a fantastic opening shot to the film where you just start on him uh, in his trailer because he's this stunt motorbike rider, and he's flipping this butterfly knife over and over and over and over again. He stabs it into the wall, and then he walks off, and there's a sort of languorous walk through the sort of uh, the carnival to his sort of wheel of death where he rides his motorbike, and you just see the back of his head. You don't see his face at any point. Uh, and then he gets onto his bike and he puts on his helmet and then you finally sort of see him. And then they go into this essentially metal sphere and the three motorbikes zoom around up, upside down, left and right, over each other, whatever. And that's him, you know, he's a daredevil. A heavily tattooed, slightly, you know, shall we say volatile uh, chap. But as you say, he, he runs into Eva Mendes, who he'd met uh, a year previously when they'd been back in that town, finds out he has a small child. And then for all of his faults, decides to do the right thing. He quits his job. He decides to stick around and try and be a father to this little boy with, shall we say, mixed success. Obviously, it's not usual one would decide to provide for one's child by robbing multiple banks in a day. But uh, this seems to work for him. His motorbike skills lend him uh, a certain getaway route. It doesn't go brilliantly. And then the film takes some sort of uh, it skips. I mean, it's not a spoiler to say the film is split into three parts. There's three very distinct narratives here. Uh, the first one is is sort of centres on Gosling. The second one centres on Bradley Cooper, and then the third one is a sort of a big 15 year leap mm. um, to to when everyone's a little bit older, and it focuses on on the children. It tries to cover an awful lot in I won't say a lean running time. It's about two hours and twenty minutes, so it's, it is actually quite a long film. But it stretches itself, I think, very thin, and I think that's where they sacrifice a lot of the the character motivation and, mm. uh, and and it's the complete opposite of oblivion which is very very sort of methodical very sort of plodding very careful and this seems to sort of skip along because it has so much ground to cover um, but I think you said this Phil it feels very Shakespearean in many ways and I think that's absolutely true just that you know it is all about sort of the sins of the father and sort of you know people sort of wringing their hands over what their parents have been up to um, Would it maybe have been better almost as a trilogy you know sort of an art house trilogy it would be an odd trilogy um <laughs> I, you know what i know i really do i like what he did with it I, I i like the film as it is i think you know it is flawed it, it lacks characterization it, it, it you know it lacks substance in certain places and, but it's a, it's a really brave attempt to do something slightly different you know i really enjoyed it i know phil you were you were perhaps less enamored with it than i was yeah well we've given this film four stars yeah. and mm. that's a very big recommendation so I'm reluctant to say anything too critical but I did feel that it was actually I hadn't thought of it before but you're right I think it's been making an amazing like 10 part HBO miniseries <laughs> seriously because there's so much it covers such a lot and it doesn't really like it feels like it sort of tapers as you get towards the end because it just isn't the time to give everyone put flesh on the bones of all the characters lots of things to like about it though the opening is amazing mm. that globe of death sequence yeah I, I just want to give tell us the story Go well on. no it's not really a story that I don't know the story but I'm, I did read an interview where um, Derek TM France was talking about his cinematographer Sean Bobbitt deciding to get into this globe of death <gasps> with his camera with the three riders to get a shot and one of the bikes landing on him and, and him waking up in hospital <laughs> so you know a level of, of uh, madness dedication is the word yeah. involved in that um, yeah and, and I really think Ben Mendelsohn is, is, is terrific in everything and in this Dane DeHaan I think is very good too mm -hmm. in fact all the actors are good it's well cast I just think it tried the story is just elongated and it just tries to do a bit too much in the time available in, yeah. In, yeah. and it's not a short film either so um, it does have the line if you ride like lightning you're going to crash like thunder it does <laughs> indeed have that line which for me is already the line of the year <laughs> that sounds a bit point break simply. I was saying yeah I was just thinking 
So this doesn't quite have the micro-focused power of, uh, you know, of Blue Valentine, for no. example. But we still give this four stars, which is very much a, a high recommendation. Finally, in our review section this week, uh, we're going to take a look at The Gatekeepers, which is a documentary that focuses on Israeli intelligence, with filmmaker Dora Murray uh, interviewing the six surviving former heads of Israeli's Domestic Intelligence Bureau about counterterrorism, assassination, and the seemingly insoluble Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Phil, straight to you. <laughs> Why are you coming to me? Um, yeah, come to me. All right. Oh, this is exciting. This is a foreign film. And it's a documentary. It is. Oh, such a cliche. Double whammy. I, this is a really terrific documentary. Uh, we've given it five stars, so that kind of speaks volumes, really, that it's rare that we give a documentary five stars. And I think it takes as its jumping off point, I don't know if people have seen Errol Morris's The Fog of War, which mm. kind of interviews Robert McNamara about his kind of lessons about about international diplomacy and foreign policy and war, etc. Uh, in this case, it's, as you say, it's a six former members of Shimbet. Shimbet is basically the bit of the Israeli secret service that wasn't in Munich. So these are the <laughs> internal security guys. This is MI5 rather than MI6. Mm-hmm. So these six guys are basically M. They're all M. They're all Judy Dench. Wow. They are... She gets around. Bad, these, these are bad... These are badass dudes. I mean, they've seen and done a lot of stuff. A lot of them have actually been undercover in the occupied territories, Gaza, etc. The thing that comes across from this film, and it's a very thoughtful film, and I think it's designed as a, as a starting off point for a bigger debate, is that they all, in their own way, are quite... One of them actually says, you do this work and you do all these terrible things, or some of these terrible things at least, but you do them for reasons that you think are just or whatever. But you, when you come out of it, you're actually far more liberal than when you started because you can see the mistakes that get made over and over again. And really, at its core, it's a film about Israel and Palestine and how it coexists. But it's not a rah-rah, drum-beating Israeli... They're not patriots. They're they're really trying to get Mm. to the core of the matter. Um, There's lots of fascinating Zero Dark Thirty-style kind of reconstructions and um, interesting vignettes about, for instance, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, interesting bits on uh, assassination attempts on Hamas leaders, and, uh, and and the really tough decisions that go that go behind those. And, and the fact that he's got, the director's got the six of these guys together, not together, but yeah. got them all to talk, is remarkable in itself. Because I can't imagine these people want to have a high profile, even though they've all retired. They span the last 20 years of Israeli secret intelligence. And that's a pretty you know dark time. A lot of bad things happened. And, and it gets to the heart of all of that stuff. So if you have any interest in those kind of issues <laughs> <laughs> and who doesn't and who doesn't and you know just the mechanics of spying really you know Zero Dark Thirty or Skyfall or whatever you know this is a fascinating documentary it's got lots of interesting stuff and these six guys as I say they are they're pretty badass and, and some of the things that they've done and have experienced and witnessed that are worth hearing firsthand. Am I being an idiot in wondering why it's called The Gatekeepers? Um, you no know, I wouldn't say so I hadn't really considered that but I imagine they call the gatekeepers because they are they are the I guess they're the gatekeepers to in two directions one to the the, the prime minister and the, the you know the, the the authorities in Israeli government and also to the people they kind of a go between they're the ones that have to deliver because they have to make these decisions every day in Israel I think the, to protect their people etc and a lot of this film is about 
trying to stop Israeli terrorism as well as you know you think about Hamas and stuff but a lot of it's like you know there was a there was a plot to blow up the I think it's, it's the Golden Dome in Jerusalem by Israelis which would have t- specifically intended to create a massive war against Islam it wasn't Yitzhak Rabin assassinated by Israel? Well, exactly mm. Yitzhak Rabin who had overseen the the, the um, um, Oslo yeah. Accord is that right? I think so. Um, the peace accord with um, Yasser Arafat and the PLO. He was obviously very unpopular with certain members of the um, of the of the population, and he was assassinated as a result. That was one of the failings that they talk about in the film. Um, so the gatekeepers, in a sense, that I guess they are they're standing they're standing in the sort of <clears throat> at the doorway, really, to try and protect the people, but also they made mistakes as well. Sounds fascinating. Are you have I have I have no knowledge of this film beforehand, but your review. Philip J. DeSemelin has made me really want to watch it. Oh, this is heartwarming. And I. Boom. Yeah, I think people should watch it. I mean, look, we gave it five stars. I didn't review it, but our reviewer thought it was five stars, and I'd probably go along with that. I don't think it's quite as good as The Fog of War. Um, I don't think the visuals are quite as as interesting, perhaps, Mm. but it's certainly full of amazing things. And, And as I say, these six people are probably six of the most secretive covert dudes in the world and he's got them all he's persuaded all of them to sit in front of a camera and talk openly about some of the stuff they've done um, and seen that's pretty good going so the least we could all do is watch it yes and that gets our highest recommendation Um, also out this week uh, Pasolini's Theorem gets a limited re-release we give that four stars Uh, Helen McCrory gets a well-deserved leading role in Flying Blind which got three Uh, Simon Killer is a black-hearted character study from Antonio Campos. That also got three. Um, uh, This year's BAFTA shorts get a cinema release and three stars. Um, And Scary Movie 5 opens. But do you know what? It didn't screen for critics. How weird That's astonishing. That? I know, right? It's hard to believe. Um, well, I, I have I have one star lying around here that you can probably oh, append to if you like. Well, so. well luckily, uh, Kim Newman, who is clearly uh, some kind of masochist, will be going to see that on opening day, so look out for that review on the website. I'll pass the star is to that, him. Is that Charlie Sheen's first big screen return since... Since um, and Lindsay Lohan, so really, I mean, that's a reason to see it. Warlocks for some people, right there. Uh, and that's it. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun, when we'll be joined by French actor-director Mathieu Kassovitz uh, to talk about his return to directing in Rebellion, as well as Fede Alvarez and Jane Levy to talk about Evil Dead. Yes, we are that international. So there's no denying it. We'll also be reviewing both of those films, as well as Olympus Has Fallen, Promised Land, and more. So be there wherever there is. Given that. This This is an entirely portable means of communication. Uh, Until then, it's goodbye from James. Goodbye. Uh, Goodbye from Ali. Goodbye now. And goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks very much. 